what does AI hold in store for us? I don't know. But Christian Hubs, the host of Artificially Intelligent Podcast, knows a little bit more about it than I do because he's involved in programming the damn things. After my Soho Forum debate, he asked me to rejoin him for the second time on Artificially Intelligent. Being a curious sort, I ended up asking him a few questions and picking his brain. And I'm including it as episode 145 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast. Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Artificially Intelligent. Today I am joined by uh, Anthony Samarov, who's calling in from uh, Glasgow, correct? That's right, Glasgow, Scotland. <laughs> so uh, it's actually, Anthony, it's your second time on the show, and I wanted to get you back on. Um, your first time was back on episode 78, where we talked about your book, UBI, For and Against, which lays out the cases like it says, for and against a universal basic income. And so we, we touched on that a little bit. But recently, I had a chance to meet up with you in New York uh, with for a Soho Forum debate with you and Martin Ford on whether or not robots will cause mass unemployment. So I wanted to take a little bit to just catch up with that because it's a very pertinent topic to uh, to this podcast and some things that we discuss here. Yeah, and certainly I've benefited from your own expertise on this kind of topic of robots taking our jobs. So I got that opportunity to debate at the Soho Forum in New York because the host, Gene Epstein, read my book, Universal Basic Income For and Against, and he said that the section on automation was the best thing he'd seen written from a libertarian perspective and that he'd be recommending it to other people um, if the topic came up and on the basis of that invited me to debate so very lucky and a very very high compliment um on that on that particular article yeah and the debates um i did a quick recap uh just when i got back to back to chicago after the debate but um i'd love to get some of your thoughts and opinions because i mean it seemed like martin just never really came after you in the debate it was just kind of hemming and hawing a little bit and just sort of saying, well, this time is different because it is different. And so we need to be worried. And there wasn't really a strong um, thesis to really dissect and, and push back against. Yeah, I guess I at least recommend that people go and check out on YouTube if they haven't already, at least my opening statement for the debate, because I think that puts my case forward uh, pretty well. The debate was enjoyable from start to finish, but I would say, I kind of would agree with you. I made a mistake, I suppose, during my rebuttal section, um, because to be honest, Martin Ford didn't give me much to comment on that I hadn't addressed already in my opening statement. And I suppose what I would have done was just address the motion. Um, I tried to reply to some of his points, and I think that was my weakest uh, section, my rebuttal. Uh, however, the question and answer session was pretty funny. Uh, there's there's quite a few laughs in it, so I think people would actually enjoy that debate if they haven't gone hearing it already. But um, yeah, indeed, I, I kind of had a few stages to my argument. The first one was, is this really happening faster than it has in the past? Is automation replacing jobs any faster? Because the resolution did say soon, and soon was defined as 10 to 20 years. So, so far, it doesn't, that doesn't seem to be the case, but the future doesn't equal the past. 
So I said, even if this does start to accelerate, does that mean that people will be massively out, out of a job in the near future? And then the third stage was, even if that, that was true, would that necessarily be a bad thing? And of course, um, if you look at the world that you see on Star Wars when they've got replicators, that looks pretty cool, you know, being able to go to a replicator and ask for a hot Earl Grey and have it materialise for you. So a fully automated society isn't necessarily a, a bad thing. And uh, I just I just made that in, in the final stages of my opening statement. Right. I mean, it seemed like Ford, when he pushed back against you, was... I mean, I guess it's kind of hard. I went back and I checked out the the debate again. And for those of you who haven't, we'll link to it in the show notes. This is episode number 97. So you can check it out on YouTube and try to get it over uh, 10,000 views. So it's right on the cusp there. So hopefully we can get that bump uh, over the top. Um, But Ford didn't really have a whole lot for why that would necessarily be a bad thing. At one point, you were talking about how, yeah, everybody's cost of living would drop uh, across the board, which is a point that I've emphasized many times on the show, is that when you move to automation and you start to uh, be able to increase your productivity, cost of goods drops. And so your standard of living is able to rise incredibly just because things are cheaper. Uh, You have much more purchasing power to go out there and actually uh, get those items. And his whole thing was like, well, maybe if it goes economy-wide, that's going to go into a uh, a depression. And then Gene Epstein, the moderator, uh, he had to bite his tongue on that one to hold back and from yeah. getting into the debate on that on that point. Yeah, so that's the major thing that people need to understand, which I, I spoke about a little bit in my podcast, the Scottish Liberty podcast, in my episodes regarding this. If, say, automation increases at its rate of implementation and the cost of goods and services go down, let's just say to make the numbers easy by half, um, everything is cheaper, including your rent, because they put up all these high-rise buildings that are 3D printed really cheap. So everything's cheaper and the cost of living is half what it is now. Suddenly a $10 wage becomes worth what a $20 wage used to be because you can buy twice as much stuff, which means there's much more money to employ people doing all sorts of things that they weren't able to be employed doing before. Like I made the the example of like most cafes can uh, afford to have a flamenco guitarist play in them. Uh, but, you know, if everything, if if the coffees are now um, half the price of what they are now, but some people are willing to pay a little bit more for a coffee to have some live music, that kind of thing becomes more affordable to cafe owners. Um, do you, you can, the, the main thing, are, the way I make this argument is when people say, what will the unemployed people do? I say, well, what would you do if your wage was worth twice what it is now? Who would you pay to do stuff for you? Maybe you'd get a cook. Maybe you'd get someone to tidy your room for you like Dr. Jordan Peterson has told you to do or take your trash out or whatever. What? Um, maybe you'd get a gardener. Maybe you'd get a butler. <laughs> Lord knows. So but that's where the work is. And we are told that classroom sizes are too big and that uh, hospital waiting lists are too long and that we've got all these environmental problems and we need green jobs to to solve them and that uh, there's no one there to look after granny when she retires. So the thing is, 
maybe we would like to pay someone to look after granny, but we just can't afford it. But that won't necessarily be the case when all the goods and services cost half of what they need now. Suddenly you've got so much left over after paying your bills that you can afford um, for someone to look after your near and dear and get and put your kids in a school where the classroom sizes are reasonable and um, to you know, pay for pay for pay more for healthcare so that more hospitals get opened up so that the waiting lists aren't too long and, and what have you. Those are all the kinds of things that there's still plenty of work needing doing, at least for the time being. So so I'm not too scared at the moment. Right. Yeah, that's one of the things that I think a lot of people push back on when you say, for example, um, these truck drivers. The truck drivers are always right. used as the example for yeah. the, the the people who are going to be displaced. And they talk about how, oh, they can't be retrained to learn how to code or be a flamenco guitarist or whatever it might be. But And I, I find that to be just a bit of um, this kind of like paternalistic and elitist view of, of a lot of mm-hmm. people um, that people have on those in the lower classes. I mean, mm. I, I know that I've got people in my family and others who are, you know, blue collar workers and, you know, they are incredibly um, creative people <laughs> oftentimes. Right. But they don't necessarily have outlets for that. They don't have uh, the time or the space to go and actually uh, create the music that they would love to. And, and in a world where, you know, the truck drivers might not be needed. Um, it, it opens up a lot of those opportunities. I mean, in a place where people are making money on YouTube and Spotify and blogging and all this other stuff by pursuing uh, these routes that they that they want. And hey, maybe if prices drop, that you can live off of, you know, 10 bucks a month or a week or whatever it is, because automation has made everything super abundant so that sure. you're able to, you can stretch that so much more. I mean, that just opens up those opportunities for those people. And I don't know. I just get I just get kind of perturbed when everybody kind of pushes back and says treats uh, treats dr- truck drivers or blue collar workers like they're adults. I mean, right. you know, if if Einstein had grown up in a different time period, you know, he would have just been another farmer. Uh, That's but true. Be, but because he grew up in an industrialized society, we've had we've had been able to benefit from him having the time and the space to to investigate those things, investigate you know space <laughs> and, and yeah, time and relativity. Yeah. And, yeah, so it's a good point you make because I had plenty of people come onto my um, YouTube and say, "Oh, what is Jack the trucker once he's been disemployed going to look after Granny?" That's not realistic, and I was like, "No, that's not what I mean. What I mean is the drop in and the price of shipping goods from." Lord knows where to the stores that is going to accrue from the implementation of the automation of trucking is going to allow people to pay someone to look after granny. However, when it comes to Jack the Trucker, the market will decide. The the best, we don't actually know what these individuals are best suited for. The best kind of training is on the job training. So to the degree that you have a free market people will pay to train Jack the trucker in whatever he's decides that he's suited to. Um, if the minimum wage and labor laws and mandatory contributions to um, insurance companies from employers and 
um, payroll taxes, if all these things are too high, that makes chart taking someone on for $20,000 actually cost an employer $28,000 or Lord knows what. And that, that makes it hard to take people on and reabsorb people who are displaced from other jobs. So, so that's why I say to the degree it's a free market because on the job training is the best kind of training. Now, as you said, with the cost of living going down, these people are going to need lower wages as well. And the, and there might be an adjustment when there's deflation. Um, there might be wage deflation as well. But the, the deflation in the price of goods te- would tend to be a lot faster than the deflation in wages. So um, that's not necessarily a concern. I don't mean to get really into the uh, economics of it. But I think that people don't actually appreciate how dynamic an economy is and how adaptive an economy is. And that really an economy is just people turning up to serve other people and meet other people's needs. And we pay each other to do that. We pay each other to do things that we don't want to do ourselves. And that's why that's why we're in a marketplace place. That's why we exchange things. Whatever gets automated um, leaves room for other people to find other things to do because they don't need to do the things that the machines are doing anymore. And yeah, sometimes there's a period of adjustment or whatever, but I, I really don't think in the economy of the future that um, just because someone's displaced from a trucking job, they're necessarily going to have trouble getting an employ- employment. The other thing I meant to say was, I was on a show with Max Sklar, the local Maximum, uh, another person I luckily had the fortune to meet in New York because he came along to my debate. And He's he also meant- been a guest on this show as well. So. Oh, great. Oh, great. So you know Max. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and he mentioned to me that from what he that he'd seen an article saying that if you look at the actual average age of truckers, most of them look to be going into retirement in 10 to 20 years anyway. So it might actually be that the automation's coming along at just about the right time for most of them to retire, which is pretty funny. And the mm-hmm. other thing he says, whenever they try to automate things in their work by creating little computer programs and things like that. Yeah, it takes on some functions, but then the bosses go, oh, well, that looks good. Maybe you can automate this, that, and the other. And it ends up being just as much work, uh, or rather, it makes the company more productive, but it doesn't displace anyone out of a job. Right. And, and that's the point that I tried to make to Martin in our discussion afterwards, because I talked to him a bit, and you know, I have done work um, where I've automated stuff and I'm trying to automate actually a big chunk of things with uh, using AI and trying to roll some, some stuff out. But uh, when you talk to managers and others, you know, labor is a, re- a scarce resource that they have. They have certain budget constraints and others, and there's always more work to be done to improve the company, improve its operations. And so even if you automate this one task or whatever it is, it may be in the case that I'm going after, it's maybe 50% of somebody's job that I'm actually trying to, uh, to automate away. 
they want that not only at the managerial level, but also at the um, that that specific role because that's half their job, and they would like to spend it not on this on this repetitive task that's high stress and takes a lot of stuff. But they, they're just like, man, I, I could free up time to improve other things and to work in other areas. And everybody's looking forward to getting this kind of stuff to work uh, for that reason because then they can uh, go ahead and reallocate their own scarce resources of budget and labor and other things like that um, to to for for better use and. When I said that to Martin, he was just kind of like, hmm, okay, right. Like you could see it, like it made sense, but I don't mm. know. It was just surprising that it's like, yeah, this isn't just at my company. This is everywhere. Mm. Right. Uh, lovely. I'd love to hear more about what you talked to Martin about because I was too busy trying to flog books to have a proper long chat with him. <laughs> but by the way, on that subject, go to Amazon and get your copy of Universal Basic Income For and Against with the excellent section in automation in it. I added a new essay to the 2020 edition uh, at the end. It's called Universal Basic Income, Utopian Dream or Dystopian Nightmare. You will love that essay. Do me a favor. Go on it. Go on Amazon and buy the book, right? That was your um, <laughs> advert break for this show, you know, when you listen to yep. podcasts to go... Next, after a word from our sponsor, is um, Christian Hub's uh, anecdote on his conversation with Martin Ford. <laughs> well, for anybody who's interested, we'll include the link in the show notes uh, for it so that uh, people can go out and, and buy the book. And I do recommend it. I've got a copy signed by you, uh, which you were kind enough to give to me at the... Uh, at the uh, after the debate, so I appreciate that, and do recommend the book for any listeners out there who want to get into some of the the details here. So uh, you know the other thing you you know you made a point about um, the cost of labor, and there's there's that trade off between you know obviously the cost of labor versus the cost of automation. And I don't know if you saw this, but I think it was about two maybe three years ago now. Bill Gates had come out and talked about um, taxing robots and taxing companies oh, yeah. that move to automation to increase the cost of labor uh, for for those types of things. Whereas the easy thing, like you had had mentioned before, it'd be to actually cut the payroll taxes, cut all these taxes mm. that go on and that artificially increase the cost of actually hiring a person. I mean, that seems to me to be the the straightforward and easy way to, to go about it. Yeah, unfortunately, the government doesn't really have the incentive to tax something that the government gains from. So um, while it may be the sensible thing to a degree, um, I don't know if they're as incentivized as they are to tax the robots. It seems I don't think it's likely that they'll tax the robots, but I don't think it's a very good idea because it's just basically um, putting a tax on progress, really. I mean, see if we weren't always hearing about poverty and things like that in the United States, like it'd be more... Um, can, I'd be more like, well, maybe the pace of change is too fast. Like, you know, maybe 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 we should slow down the pace of change by taxing the robots. We can't adjust to all the new technologies that are coming out. But really, what we want is for the price of goods and services to come down so low that no one's impoverished because everything's super abundant. And if the robots are just trying to make everything cheaper, then that seems like a seems like a bad idea to me. I'm in full agreement with you on that point. You don't see these things 
shifting all the time. I mean, I was even thinking about it uh, recently. And sure, the internet has revolutionized a lot of stuff and a lot of the day-to-day work. You know, you're carrying a smartphone and other things. But, you know, I don't think that even going back, say, 10 years or 20 years, today's world would be indistinguishable for for somebody um, if they just got into a time machine and you brought them from, say, 1990 to 2020 or 2000 to 2020, for that matter. Um, the, I, I think it's, it's easy to overstate the speed of change because it seems to have happened in a very narrow technology-based, um, as in internet technology and information technology, computing space um, world. That's where that rapid change has really occurred. But in the broader world, you know, uh, outside of that, it's been much slower as, as, uh, as technology progresses and, and things adapt. Do you mean an industry? It's been slower to adapt. I, I think just day to day life. I mean, you, you talked about you know slowing down the the, the pace of change for people, and mm. I, I don't think that to your point, I don't think that the pace is you know this blistering right. uh, thing that nobody can keep up with. I think in certain narrow niches, primarily involving you know the tech sector and everything that's coming out mm. of Silicon Valley, that's where the the biggest changes have happened. But you go to other areas and. Yeah, it's pretty much the same thing. Um, you know, automobiles haven't been revolutionized despite the promise of self-driving cars. I mean, sure, we have GPSs in our uh, cars uh, today. And we've um, all got terrible at reading maps. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've, we've, gotten, we've uh, had some effects along those lines. But again, I mean, you take somebody from 20, 30 years ago and put them today, I think that they'd be able to navigate just fine. So I, I think it's, it's easy to focus in on a narrow area and yeah. say... I think yeah, they'd be pretty. I think they'd be pretty amazed, though, if oh, you took someone our age in nineteen ninety and brought them to twenty twenty, because um, they just be like, "Whoa, this is so cool! What you just open, you just take a device at your your pocket and you can look up anything." I mean, thirty years ago, no Wikipedia. Wow, I don't think they right. get bored. I think someone coming from nineteen ninety coming to twenty twenty would just be like. I've just spent the whole week on the internet looking at stuff. <laughs> yeah, without that annoying dial-up tone or anything yeah. like that. So. <laughs> well, I was thinking even someone pre-internet. Well, I think my childhood would have been a lot better if I'd had the internet. Um, you know, I'm 34, and uh, I spent a lot of time playing video games, but it was quite uh, when it, but it was quite isolated. And at least later on, you could play all these games where you have a headset on and you can socialize. Besides, like, I'm an autodidact. I love learning about stuff. But when I was, when I came home from school, I would just like come home and watch the, the TV for a couple of hours because I didn't do what my homework. Whereas I think given that most of what I do with my, when I, when I've got time to kill is uh, listen to podcasts. I don't mean like that's my only hobby. I mean, when I'm around the house, I, I, I listen to more podcasts than I do say what shows or listen to music at the moment. So I probably would have learned so much stuff when I was at school. I would have been like a super genius. And that would have been much better than all the crap television that I watch. Because, you know, you're limited to whatever was on. And I'd sometimes watch stuff even if I didn't like it, just because if I put the TV off, I probably would have had to do my homework. So I know my life would have been better if I'd had the internet, or at least I think it would have been. Yeah, I mean, I I think the same thing for for myself is that, uh, you know, because I, I know what you mean. When I was a kid, just having the TV on and sitting there mindlessly watching was a uh, was a better option for procrastination purposes than than a lot of other things. But 
<laughs> but um, I, I know you saw this today, uh, and I bring it up because your original debate partner was not Martin Ford, but Andrew Yang, who <sighs> actually uh, dropped out of the Democratic uh, race as of this recording a few hours ago. He so, dropped out the Democratic Democrat. I can't even speak, Christian. <laughs> he <laughs> dropped out of the Democratic race just like he drops out his forthcoming debate with me. Exactly. What a sucker. Um, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Um, I think we should uh, reissue that challenge, bring him back on. And, he should. Uh, he should come and debate me. <laughs> yeah, I don't see what what reason he would have to debate me now um, that he's not got. A, well, I think probably the reason why he dropped out the debate was A, too busy, B, he was like, or his advisors were like, well, if you win, it doesn't really do anything for you. Whereas if you lose, um, then some relatively unknown guy kicked your ass and that won't look good for your campaign. But I feel like he would have given me a lot more pushback than Martin Ford did. Uh, he he could have really pressed me. Uh, he could have said things like people in the Rust Belt, their jobs got automated away or, or moved offshore and they didn't get new jobs. You know, they all went on disability and impressed me on some of his talking points like that and made me have to think harder. Um, he also could have really pressed me on the thing about, well, you may see that goods and services go down in price for everyone, um, and that's great for people who have a job. But what if your income's zero because you have no job? Like, if I were Martin Ford, I would just keep on like hammering that point with a chisel because it's kind of like a, it's harder, it's easier to say that than to, than to give an adequate answer because none of us have a crystal ball. I think he might have been. And he's also a more charismatic speaker. No, no offense to Martin Ford. He's a good speaker and he, mm -hmm. pre he, he was well prepared. Uh, his, um, opening statement was done with, uh, with very few notes and he's, he spoke off the top of his head. I just think that Andrew Yang is like more dynamic, more energetic. And he, you know, he's funny. He sometimes laughs nervously like I do and makes jokes. So I think there is a good chance that we would have had a little bit of banter, um, if, if he'd attended the debate. So now he's out the democratic race. That's a shame. Uh, cause he was one of the more interesting characters to listen to. Um, so I, so do you have anything to say on it? Um, yeah, I mean, we can issue the, uh, the challenge out here. If, uh, if Yang wants to, uh, re-up the debate um, maybe we can we can talk to gene and, and get that uh, organized i'm sure gene would be more than happy to to uh bring it in but maybe have have some stiffer penalties so we don't get somebody dropping out again i think uh gene gene put it this way andrew yang's not gene's favorite character anymore so uh but any platform i'm willing to do it if andrew yang's willing to do it we could do it here. I mean, I'm, I'm fine moderating a debate between you guys. Sure. So if anyone knows anyone who knows Andrew Yang. Well, who, who did Gene get in touch with in the first place uh, to get the Soho debate uh, originally scheduled? Uh, I think as uh, Andrew Yang's assistant. I think we got you got in touch with Andrew Yang's assistant. So, well, um, yeah, we, I, could, we could organize something. I can I can pass you on her address. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. We can we can we can talk about that and and see if we can get Yang on the on the podcast uh, to to debate you on on this topic because yeah I'm, I'm with you I think that Ford could have 
you know, push those areas, push those uh, points a bit more. I mean, one of the things that you mentioned is, you know, okay, what's the, what's going to happen if you have no income and you have, or you have no job and what does it matter if everything's super cheap? Well, I mean, I guess I could think of one response. First off, uh, it does seem to be kind of begging the question because the point yeah, is that you're that's exactly what I be, think. Yeah, you're not going to be losing the job. But on the other hand, you could say, okay, even accepting that, um, you can also push back and say, well, then the cost of charity would probably or would be decreased dramatically as well. So you could see a lot more charitable organizations and other things popping up to be able to help people, people with more free time because they don't need to work, who want to help others, which is a very fulfilling thing um, that a lot of people do do when they go into retirement or um, if they are independently wealthy, don't need to work, etc. You know, you do see a lot more people. And if, if more people can achieve that status because the cost of living is so much lower, I mean, why not? I would expect to see more people engaged in charitable charitable activities. Yes, that um, yeah, that's a good point. And so, as it does beg the question, it does assume because the whole thing that you're you're trying to debate is whether it's going to be jobless. So, right. um, yeah. So if you just assume but, it's going to be jobless, then okay, well, you kind of. What's the point of the debate? Is, yeah, yeah, it's kind of circular reasoning. You didn't tell us the rest of your anecdote with, when, with your conversation with Martin Ford, by the way. Oh, you know, it was just, uh, uh, you, we talked about that as far as uh, being able to expand and, and how, just like you said with Max, you automate one thing and then all of a sudden there's all this other stuff like, hey, now you try to tackle different things. You have more people who have their time freed up to uh, improve customer service or improve operational efficiency or whatever it is. Um, but the other thing that I pushed back on him with is that I, I think he has a much more, he's, okay, he's not a technical person. And when I told him that I am engaged on a day-to-day basis, actually building a lot of these algorithms and building these systems and saying that they aren't as powerful as a lot of people think. Um, yeah, they're great in certain areas, but it's not like these are panaceas. You know, deep learning and uh, modern machine learning technologies are are really cool. And I mean, we have a whole podcast devoted to, to talking about this stuff because I'm excited about it. I love it. I think it's, it's fascinating. Um, but you know, look at look at all the billions, literally billions, have been spent on, say, self-driving cars, and uh, by multiple companies around the globe. And we're still, it's always a few years away. It's something that just seems like it's always receding into the in, into the future. You know, this stuff is really cool and powerful in narrow applications, but it's not going to be. It's not this broad. It will solve absolutely everything that you've ever encountered. And I think that that's kind of his perspective of it. You know, if you listen closely to the guys in Silicon Valley, that's what they're that's what they tell you because they want you to, to believe that. And um, whether they believe it or themselves or not uh, is irrelevant because that's that's the messaging that comes out is that this is going to solve everything. But that's everything that Silicon Valley puts out. Uh, and I feel like he's just kind of uncritically accepted that in many cases. At least that's the impression I got from him because he kind of stopped when I said I, there are serious limitations to some of these algorithms. He's like, hmm, really? I haven't I haven't thought about that. That being said, what about, you know, given the human race isn't going anywhere anytime soon, I don't think. Um, maybe in China, they're, uh, sorry, rather, maybe in Japan, they're not having uh, enough children. Uh, but I, but given 200 years, 300 years, 400 years, 500 years, where do you see this going? 
I mean, I, I'm, I'm not prepared to make a prognostication a few centuries out <laughs> into the future. Um, sure, sure, <laughs> sure. I'm just saying you're saying that these things aren't working that, that uh, at the level that people seem to think they are. And I accept that. But I'm just asking you, given that you've got some expertise that I don't, some inside knowledge. You know, I'm a, a, an economist and a, an auto autodidact one at that, you know, I self-studied economics for 11 years. Mm -hmm. I don't, I've not got inside technical knowledge. Um, I've not programmed a computer. I've not programmed anything since I was like a small child, <laughs> you know, uh, when I've, when I used the public static void main <laughs> in a, in a, in a Java outlet applet or whatever it was so it's i've not done anything since then so i don't really know anything about this stuff so i'm saying supposing their predictions are 20 years or 30 years out when it comes to self-driving cars or the, ne the 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 next thing the other thing the next thing that's going to be automated i mean that's uh that still means something um mm -hmm. What, what what's your vision of the the time scale of this and what kind of things that we might start seeing in our lifetimes and then what kind of things might we be seeing in our children's lifetimes yeah i mean i think we will see fully autonomous vehicles that i think that's something that will occur whether it's the level 5 where it can go anywhere at all times remains up for debate but at least with uh, what they call level 4 autonomy where you have um geofencing so if you're living like uh in chicago you know, there's there's a certain geographic boundary beyond which you can't engage in autonomous driving because the roads aren't mapped as well or updated as frequently. There isn't enough traffic out there um, to be as, as trustworthy. The conditions aren't known. Stuff like that. So there there'll be some sort they'll be circumscribed and some sort of limitations. I think we will see that within the next decade. Um, you know, the point being just that a lot of people who look at deep learning as this panacea that's going to solve everything, I think, are, 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 are mistaken because it does require a massive amount of data in order to train a lot of these systems. And so for some jobs that you have, uh, you have a sufficient amount of data. You have, you know, say, a million data points that are similar enough that they, you can say that they're, yeah, they're probably drawn from the same data distribution, um, meaning that we can train one of these systems. But um, if you have stuff that's uh, significantly smaller, maybe you have 10,000 data points uh, to, to draw from, then sometimes, oftentimes these algorithms aren't going to work or if the data is too varied um, because it's always, you know, fairly unique situations, those algorithms aren't going to work. What you're going to need are types of uh, causal models or something like that. So you can think of it this way, like physics is kind of a causal model for things. If this happens, if a force acts on this body, then this other thing happens. And so there's a lot of work now that's going into trying to understand this and see if we can infer it from, from data systems and other things like that. But, you know, ultimately, I think that for, for automation um, to be able to uh, improve a lot more. I think it's got to have this kind of both and the data side on one hand, which is what's really getting a lot of the the attention, um, being married with some of the more uh, physics based 
um, or causal based uh, uh, modeling approaches. And it's not entirely clear how to actually bring those things together. When that happens, I think a lot of stuff could open up and be possible um, that isn't uh, possible today. Another thing that comes to mind though on the data side is the sample inefficiency. So how, like I said, you might need a million samples to train something where that's not how humans work. You know, if you are right. a, uh, if you're teaching a child language, for example, um, you, you point to them, you show that they might call everything a car. Um, and then one day you distinguish and say, no, actually that's a truck over there. Right. You know, they might need you to tell, say it once or twice or three times, but after that, they're probably going to get it, you know, right. uh, okay. whereas a, a, a deep learning system, which is kind of the forefront of modern AI is going to need um, you know, uh, 10,000, 100,000 examples of like car versus truck or more, a million examples, depending on what, what you're trying to classify and what you're trying to do and what your data looks like. Um, and so that's just, that's just one of the, the, the big limitations is the amount of data and other things that you need and getting that sam those samples out there. So I don't know if I really answered your question, but that's sort of where the state of the, of, of the field is in, in many cases when you're trying to talk about this automation. Well, other things do you automate. think will... What other things do you think we'll see automated in our lifetime? Um, I think there's going to be a lot of stuff that you see that's going to improve manufacturing processes, um, supply chain processes, uh, and, and a lot of the operational work that goes on in many businesses. So um, a lot of times you have people who make similar decisions, um, say like scheduling decisions for what to produce, um, if they're running a factory or doing other things there. I think that's one of the things that could uh, potentially uh, be automated um, that hasn't been able to be automated before. Um, I think, you know, even just like error checking with uh, certain things, um, be it like uh, um, proofreading, um, uh, texts uh, like in editing and other things like that um, could at least be passed first through some of these NLP systems. You, you can have automated data labeling, etc. Stuff like that um, that is being developed and being being worked at uh, right now. Uh, other control systems might be able to be uh, improved by using a lot of these these data systems so that you can drive efficiencies in your manufacturing uh, in environments. Um, yeah, I, th I think I think that there's a, a lot of areas, but uh, it's going to be tough to go the full, you know, massive breadth. You know, one of the things that um, my wife and I joke about is we have a Roomba, um, but uh, these things seem to be uh, kind of stuck. Like the, you aren't getting, you know, big. Uh, leaps in performance with with Roombas today versus where they were 10 years ago versus where they were 20 years ago. And one of the big reasons is because it's very hard for them to, um, uh, to, to use this sort of AI technology. And you think, you know, it's a cleaning robot, right? Like this should be should be pretty straightforward, but you run into that issue of the just variation of different layouts and designs of houses and apartments and other things like that. And it's very difficult to... Uh, take all that data and actually make a system that's going to actually to be much, much better just because of that wide variety. So even simple things might be a bit farther out or seemingly simple things might be a bit farther out. Cool. Well, I look forward to seeing the fruits of all this innovation. It's always cool when you see something uh, new. I mean, I've seen someone with one of those little rate um, you guys yeah, vacuum cleaners that just is on wheels and kind of moves backwards and forwards. 
And it did some of the work, but I had a feeling it wasn't going to replace my friend having to actually grab the vacuum cleaner and do the rest of the room at some point. Yeah, that was my hope when we bought one, but no, no, it's just not <laughs> not up to it. So, Anthony, it's been a pleasure having you back on. Um, before we wrap up, anything else that you want to add? Uh, any websites or anything that you want us to link to and uh, uh, for listeners who are interested in learning more about you? Sure, I've got a couple of podcasts. One is Scottish Liberty Podcast, which is a libertarian-themed podcast, had quite a lot of famous guests and sometimes done deep dives on topics on our own or just covered the news. That's a pretty funny podcast, quite enjoyable and quite informative. Informative. The other one is Be Yourself and Love It podcast, which is a, a personal development podcast, and it's just dedicated to really giving people practical tools and information on all sorts of things that might enrich their lives and um, personal development. I, a lot of personal development is just infotainment. You know, there's 5% practical and 95% philosophizing. Well, there's a little bit of philosophizing to be sure, because that's fun, but it does sort of try and focus on practical, on, uh, on practical things to a degree, because I'm quite a practical person. Great. So we'll link to those um, in the show notes and also back to your previous appearance um, back in episode uh, 78 and to your book, of course, um, UBI for and against for anybody who's interested. And now that you can check out the uh, the second edition that's come out. So, um, yeah, Anthony, it's been a pleasure. Um, thank you for uh, making the time and, and coming on, being part of uh, Artificially Intelligent. Thank you very much. A great honor to be invited. Great. Oh, and also before we sign off, actually, I don't think we mentioned you actually you won the debate. It's an Oxford style debate. There's voting before and after and you did win handily. Excellent. <laughs> Just want listeners to be well aware. done. Well, I never even knew. Thanks for telling me. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> oh, this is a shocking re revelation. Oh, yeah, awesome. It took, it I won took the a debate. month to tally the debate. Yeah, oh, totals, wow. <laughs> for listeners, awesome. benefit, we didn't mention it. You won. I, we just kept it. We just kept it for now so that you could do the big announce on the show. That's what it was. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again. Right. And uh, thank take you. care. Bye-bye.